The title of my talk, uh, Disobedience, the Rarest and Most Courageous of the Virtues, with a question mark, it's, it's drawn from George Bernard Shaw's Maxims for Revolutionists, which is an appendix to his play, Man and Superman. And in the Maxims, Shaw offers many uh, interesting and cheeky remarks on a variety of themes, um, foreplay, crime, democracy, self-sacrifice, and disobedience. And I'll, I'll give you a few quotes. A revolutionist is one who desires to discard the existing social order and try another, unquote. And as another quote, every man is a revolutionist concerning the thing he understands. For example, every person who has mastered a profession is a skeptic concerning it and consequently a revolutionist, unquote. And then also the one that concerns us, Disobedience is the rarest and most courageous of the virtues. It is seldom distinguished from neglect, the laziest and commonest of the vices. Vice is waste of life. Poverty, obedience, and celibacy are the canonical vices." Unquote. And so today I, I wish to explore this idea that disobedience might be a rare, if not the rarest and most courageous of the virtues, but it might be a rare virtue. And also, what is the value of disobedience when it has value? Now, the, the type of disobedience that I've studied most closely is civil disobedience. Uh, it's the focus of my book, Conscience and Conviction. And in that work, I specify civil disobedience as a conscientious breach of law that communicates both a person's opposition to a law or policy and her desire for lasting change. It's a constrained and communicative breach of law that has those aims. And uh, I'll give you very briefly a few sound bites, a few highlights of the, the claims that I defend in my work on civil disobedience. So the, the first is that sincere and serious moral conviction, conscientious moral conviction is dialogic. So when we have a conscientious moral conviction, we do more than just act consistently with our beliefs and judge ourselves and others by a common moral standard. We also do not seek to evade the consequences of our beliefs and we're willing to be, uh, so we're willing to be seen and we try to communicate our reasons for our beliefs to other people. So those last two elements, the non-evasion condition and the dialogic, the communicative condition, those are the features that, that I think are often lost in accounts of conscientiousness. We, we tend to think of the private conscientious objector as being the more sincere and serious but in my view, it's the people who, can, who want to stand up and be counted, who are willing to be seen, who are striving to say, my life is my message, they have the best claim to conscientiousness. And so in view of that, in view of that image of conscientiousness, I argue that civil disobedience is more conscientious than conscientious objection, uh, sort of so-called conscientious objection. And so civil disobedience has a better claim to the protections that a liberal society offers to people who engage in conscientious dissent. And so this, this view reverses the standard liberal picture. Uh, it, the standard liberal picture presents private conscious objection as sort of a modest act of personal belief, and it presents civil disobedience as a strategic and sometimes undemocratic act whose costs are only sometimes worth tolerating. And, and I reverse that. 
I argue that we have a moral right to engage in civil disobedience, irrespective of the regime. So even in liberal democracies, we have a moral right. And we have this right regardless of our cause. Um, and so that's one of the contentious pieces of my view. And this right is rooted in humanistic respect for us as persons, in the fact that we are expressive beings, that we have an interest in being able to stand up and be counted, and that our society and the law put undue pressure on us when they insist that we always privilege the law ahead of our deep moral convictions as expressive beings, or when they only tolerate our non-communicative, private, surreptitious acts of disobedience. And then in view of this conscientiousness of civil disobedience, uh, the, sinc the sincerity and the seriousness of people who practice it, that uh, can underpin an excusatory legal defense, uh, that we should be able to offer a demands of conviction legal excuse when we engage in civil disobedience. I have other things I say in the book about the nature of conscience. Uh, conscience is more than conscientiousness. It is genuine moral understanding. And I argue that when we have that genuine moral understanding, then we can give a stronger legal defense for civil disobedience. We can offer a necessity defense when we resort to civil disobedience in support of morally urgent needs. Now that was a big mouthful, um, but it's actually not going to be my focus for today. My aim is not to dwell on my account of civil disobedience, but to say a few things about six less, less well-trodden uh, areas of, of debate, six less well-discussed types of disobedience that press at the boundaries of civil disobedience. And those are collective disobedience, uncivil obedience, globalized disobedience, digital disobedience, aesthetic disobedience, and non-conscientious disobedience. And so I'm going to explore the conceptual and normative features of these six types with the aim of teasing out some thoughts about this, this claim that disobedience might be a rare and courageous virtue. Now, before I do that, I, I want to comment on um, a rather strange and remarkable take on disobedience that I came across when I was reading some work by uh, Frederic Crow. Uh, this is from an interview that he gave with The Guardian in 2014 on his book, The Philosophy of Walking. And uh, walking in the way that Grow describes it is liberating. Uh, you walk for several hours and then you have no identity. You sort of slough off your identity. You become just a body walking. And he says that the unconscious self is the real genius. Uh, you know, your breathing goes wrong the moment your conscious self meddles with it. Um, and, and so in that, you know, when you walk and walk and walk, you know, something very natural and liberating happens. And he says that he believes there's a link between walking and disobedience. And uh, you know, when I read that, I, I sort of stumbled over that sentence. This was very unexpected and startling when I, when I read that. And I found this thought intellectually freeing. And I took it as an invitation to say something less precise and rigorous in this talk and hopefully more reflective and insightful about disobedience. And in, in proposing such a plan to myself for a talk that actually felt like an act of disobedience, uh, disobedience against the norms of the analytic philosophy tradition that I'm a part of and disobedience against the norms for an analytic philosophy talk. 
Um, but I sort of embrace this liberating impulse. And, and as John Ruskin puts it, the, the wish to disobey is already disobedience. And so the, the insights that I hope to offer in what follows, they, some of them pertain to disobedience in thought, the, the sort of the threat and power of deviant ideas. And some of them relate to disobedience in action, starting with this simple act of walking. And so I'm going to muse for a bit on Gros' idea that there's a link between walking and disobedience. And he, he doesn't flesh this out, but I, when I thought about it, I identified four, at least four possible links. And so the, the first is that disobedience, like walking, seems to be liberating. Uh, the poet Archibald MacLeish wrote that when you dissent or disobey, you resign momentarily from the herd and think for yourself. And so you break the chains of conformity. In walking, as in disobeying, it seems that you can liberate your mind, you know, depart from the group. Second, my second link, uh, much more prosaically, much public dissent and disobedience involves walking. For instance, a march is usually a collection of people, a large collection of people, walking. Um, and you know, some of those acts of walking have been enormous and it's very politically significant. Uh, for example, between January and April of 2003, over 35 million people took part in 2,800 protest marches against the Iraq war. Uh, you know, essentially 35 million people walking. Um, much of that walking was not disobedient of the law, but such walking or indeed not walking can quickly become illegal. So one example of that, uh, in, in the days following um, the case where the, the police officer Darren Wilson shot Michael Brown uh, in, in August 2014 in Ferguson, Missouri, law enforcement offers, officers implemented a keep moving policy, uh, essentially imposing a five second rule on protesters that meant they couldn't stand still without facing arrest unless they were in the designated assembly area. And so in the 12 days following Michael Brown's death, 132 people were arrested for ostensibly refusing to disperse uh, because they'd paused for more than five seconds. And so in that case, walking was required, not walking was disobedient. Uh, a, a second example um, where walking or not walking can become illegal is uh, that sometimes it's illegal to walk or be in certain places at certain times. So in 2012, uh, Quebec passed a controversial bill, Bill 78, that made it illegal to demonstrate within 50 meters of an education building. This was following student protests related to tuitions. And during the same period, the Quebec government imposed a curfew forbidding people to demonstrate between 11 p.m. and 5 p.m. And this led to a much, much larger demonstration. Hundreds of thousands of people, um, largely in Montreal, were out on the streets protesting these restrictions on protest. A third example of disobedient walking, a slightly more romantic one, comes from a passage in Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. And I, I quote this passage in full in a, in a footnotes in my book. I'm, I'm pleased my editor let me get away with it. Um, and in this passage, Virginia Woolf describes walking by the river on the grounds of a Cambridge men's college. So this is the University of Cambridge, one of the you know, gorgeous gold, Goldstone colleges. 
And she says that in walking, she became lost in thought and she unknowingly disobeyed. She walked where only the college fellows were permitted to walk. And I'll read the passage in full with your indulgence. She said, there one might have sat the whole clock round lost in thought. Thought, to call it by a prouder name than it deserved, had led its line down into the stream. It swayed minute after minute, hither and thither, among the reflections and the weeds, letting the water lift it and sink it until, you know, the little tug, the sudden conglomeration of an idea at the end of one's line, and then the cautious hauling of it in and the careful laying of it out. Alas, laid on the ground, how small, how insignificant this thought of mine looked. The sort of fish that a good fisherman puts back into the water so that it may grow fatter and one day be worth cooking and eating. I will not trouble you with that thought now, though if you look carefully, you may find it for yourselves in the course of what I'm going to say. But however small it was, it had nevertheless the mysterious property of its kind. Put back into the mind, it became at once very exciting and important. And as it darted and sank and flashed hither and thither, set up such a wash and tumult of ideas that it was impossible to sit still. It was thus that I found myself walking with extreme rapidity across a, a grass plot. Instantly, a man's figure arose to intercept me. Nor did I at first understand that the gesticulations of a curious looking object in a cutaway coat and evening shirt were aimed at me. His face expressed horror and indignation. Instinct rather than reason came to my help. He was a beetle, I was a woman. This was the turf, there was the path. Only the fellows and scholars are allowed here. The gravel is the place for me. Such thoughts were the work of a moment, and as I regained the path, the arms of the beetle sank. His face assumed its usual repose, and though turf is better for walking than gravel, no very great harm was done. The only charge I could bring against the fellows and scholars of whatever college might happen to be was that in the protection of their turf, which had been rolled for 300 years in succession, they had sent my little fish into hiding. And, and so, of course, it's such a wonderful passage because Virginia Woolf's fish, Virginia Woolf's thoughts are you know, viewed you know, by many as sort of national treasures. Uh, and so to defend the turf, to point out her disobedience when her disobedience and her thoughtlessness was so creative, seems like you know, an, an assault on a collective national treasure. So you know, when she was reprimanded and brought back in line, she lost the thought that she had gained in her thoughtlessness of the college's rules. Such disobedience was a, a momentary inattention to responsibility, an inattention to social duty. And so there's, there's a link, I think, worth exploring between rejecting responsibility, being disobedient, being deviant, and being creative. Virginia Woolf's act also shows that although disobedience is necessarily reactive to some norm, some law, rule, or convention, it's not necessarily intentional. I'm gonna come back later to this idea of unintentional disobedience. Uh, and some of it we find um, quite threatening, some of it we find charming, um, but it also can have some of the same value as deliberate disobedience, which I'm going to flesh out 
Okay, so we're still working through uh, links between walking and disobedience, going back to Gros' idea at the start. And the third link uh, that I identified comes from um, Henry David Thoreau, who spoke of walking as something to do once you have honored your duties. Um, and uh, if you haven't yet honored your duties, you must consider the risks to your family of going for a walk. And so he said, if you are ready to leave father and mother and brother and sister and wife and child and friends and never see them again, if you have paid your debts and made your will and settled all your affairs and you're a free man, then you are ready for a walk. And so of course, you know, a walk would be you know, being going to Walden Pond and living as a hermit for a while or forever. And people who engage in committed lifelong disobedience, you know, the, the Gandhi-like person, the Mandela-like person, um, argue, arguably even the Aung Suu Kyi-like person, uh, much more complex story there. They are, they are doing something similar. Um, you have to attend to whether you have paid your debts, whether you have your family's blessing, whether you've made your family secure, given that you're about to leave them behind and given you're about to impose risks on them when you take a stand. One comment about Nelson Mandela was that um, you know, he left his family and then 25 years, 27 years later, when he came out of prison, he returned as the father of the nation. And then the fourth link is that disobedience like walking is a way of distancing ourselves from something. Uh, it, can be, it can be physical, it can be metaphorical, um, but it's, you know, walking can be an act of going toward or seeking out, but also a way of separating. And disobedience uh, has that act, that element as well, that we reposition ourselves in relation to something, in relation to ideas, in relation to people, in relation to places. Um, now, I shared this point with my husband, and he, he pointed out to me that driving a car is also a way of distancing ourselves from something. So I shouldn't make too much of this parallel. Um, that said, I think it's, it's interesting that Nelson Mandela's autobiography is called Long Walk to Freedom. So those are my thoughts on uh, the links between walking and disobedience, a very provocative thought offered by Gro at the, at the outset. There are, of course, some dissimilarities and, and, uh, between walking and disobedience, and here are two of them. So whereas walking uh, may let you put your story down, for a minute, you can just become a body walking. Disobedience of social, moral, and political norms often does not do that. Um, it can tear at your identity, it can redefine your identity, but it does not allow you to become just a body acting. When you resign momentarily from the herd, you lose your place in the herd, you make other people wary of you, you risk your social position but you're not just a body acting. If anything, through visible disobedience, your identity becomes utterly vivid, concentrated, caricatured, reduced to a label. Uh, you become a feminist, a gay rights activist, a trans activist, an anti-abortion activist, a civil rights activist, an environmental activist, crossing a police line. You also become the iconoclast, the dissenter, the difficult colleague, the radical, the troublemaker. So in short, disobedience doesn't bring that liberation of identity. You don't, uh, it doesn't, you don't slough off identity, you don't lose baggage. The seemingly liberating move of nonconformity 
brings a ball and chain of concentrated social identity. Now, there are many aphorisms and catchphrases that warn us against dissenting, uh, that announce the social threat in dissent and disobedience. Some of these warnings are injunctions, don't rock the boat, don't upset the apple cart. Some are declarations of fact, um, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And some of them are thinly veiled condemnations of behavior. He wants taking down a peg. She's going against the grain. And the, the personal histories of many famous dissenters in disobedience, they are warnings of a sort. They are cautionary tales about what can happen if you deviate from the herd. So Gandhi was assassinated. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Mandela spent 27 years in prison. Aung Suu Kyi spent close to 20 years under house arrest. She briefly rose to political power and now has fallen, uh, fallen from grace, both in the eyes of the international community and within Myanmar Burma. Uh, Liu Xiaobo died partway through uh, an 11 year prison sentence um, due to liver cancer. Edward Snowden fled the United States, was rebuffed by 27 countries um, from whom he sought refuge and finally landed in Russia. So these are the cautionary tales of what can happen when we deviate. Uh, now, the second point I want to make under this heading of, of um, dissimilarities between disobedience and walking is that despite what McLeish said, uh, that when you resign momentarily from the herd, you think for yourself, it may not be true that when you disobey, when you resign from the herd, that you actually do think for yourself. Disobeying might not liberate us in the same way that long walking does, because it depends on the type of disobedience. So it's true that we shed a social skin when we disobey and that it can take courage to do that. At the end of Henrik Ibsen's Enemy of the People, Dr. Stockman declares the strongest man in the world is he who stands most alone, who has shed all his social skins. But disobedience is often the assumption of a new social skin, or it's a displaying of a skin we choose to own proudly. Many disobedients have allies. Groups are a shield against the shedding of the social skin. Um, and indeed, many people uh, sort of find their community in disobedience. So in, in his book, Crimes of Dissent, Jarrett Lovell comments on some interviews that he conducted with career activists. Uh, some of whom had been ar arrested over 50 times. And Lovell notes that many career activists are highly invested in the community of which they're a member. Some people are even flexible about the causes they will champion because it's the community of dissenters that matters most to them. And so here again, uh, to stress the thought that when we disobey and withdraw momentarily from the main herd, we may simply be joining a smaller herd, the herd of dissenters, not actually thinking independently. Okay, so those are all the comments I have on, on, uh, on walking and disobedience. That's sort of my first act of disobedience to devote a, a, a talk to this um, seeming analogy or disanalogy with walking. Uh, the thing I'd like to do now is to turn to my main task, which was to reflect on different types of disobedience that sort of sit at the edges of civil disobedience um, and to reflect on different norms we can break 
we can break social norms, legal norms, moral norms, aesthetic norms, and conventional norms. And so I'm going to comment on each of these with the aim of groping toward a few insights on disobedience as a rare and courageous virtue. So first, let me say a few more things about collective disobedience. When we engage in collective disobedience, we can face grave risks, but we do not face the distinctive psychological risks that we face when we act as an individual alone. So in a group, we bear the social and legal risks holding someone else's hand, sharing a jail cell, seeing someone on our side suffering along with us. In his book, Why Societies Need Dissent, Cass Sunstein notes that if only one person in a group disagrees with the majority, that person is often left standing alone. But if a second person speaks up and agrees with the first dissenter, other people will often speak up too, and the balance of opinion can shift. So given the protection that allies can provide for us, our moral duties to, dis uh, our moral duties to disobey when they exist are less demanding when we bear them with friends. And it's, it's noteworthy that um, in Henrik Ibsen's Enemy of the People, at the end where Dr. Stockman is declaring the strongest man is he, who, is he who stands most alone, when he says that, he's drawing his wife and daughter under his, under his arms. Now, when, when political disobedience, including civil disobedience, takes collective forms, um, it's actually not as psychologically risky or as interesting as other kinds of disobedience. Disobedience in its deepest and most interesting forms, in my view, is disorienting. It re rejects a common and deeply held idea, value, or norm, be that a legal, moral, social, or conventional one. It pushes us to the boundary of what we can tolerate. Now, not all political disobedience, be it collective or otherwise, does this. Often, political disobedience simply tries to push us as a society to bring ourselves in line with ideas that are already familiar, in, indeed, ideas that we pretend to ourselves we already live by. For example, in the United States during the Civil Rights Movement, Black people pushed for full recognition of their civil and political rights. <laughs> they're, they're still pushing for full recognition of their civil and political rights as equal citizens. But the ideas of equality, natural rights, dignity that animated them were not new. Those radical ideas had been advanced in some ancient philosophies as well as by John Locke, Immanuel Kant, J.S. Mill, and many others. They're present in ideas from developed during the French Revolution, uh, the, the rights of man, the US Declaration of Independence states, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among those life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so it was those intellectual acts of radical thinking that represented the deep disobedience and not the political breaches of law that tried to get those ideas into the laws, policies, and hearts of the society. Now, obviously, those political acts were very important. They you know, confronted a lot of pressure, but the real disobedience was in the development of the underlying ideas. So let's probe further to see which kinds of disobedience of norms are indeed the most disorienting and provocative. I'm gonna look at disobedience of conventions, disobedience of morality, and disobedience of aesthetics. 
So starting with conventions, um, startling acts of disobedience can come from simply flouting common standards for conventional behavior. Uh, we can disorient ourselves simply by acting, uh, disorient each other by acting unexpectedly, by disobeying modest conventional norms in fairly modest ways. First, um, by disobeying the norms of a particular ordinary context, we can sometimes manufacture a new context with new norms that others don't yet know. Uh, so if you walk into an elevator with a group of people and you turn and face the wall, or uh, you start to hand out donuts, that disobeys the norms of elevator riding, and it will stress everyone in the space with you. They won't know what this new context is or what's expected from them. The same goes for lecturing. Um, you know, it's the convention that you sit there and I sit here or would stand here if we were together in a lecture hall. But if one of you were to quietly stand up and stay standing in the lecture hall, you would generate a new context. So too, um, I can generate a new context by doing this. My, uh, my first philosophy teacher, he um, tried out in a seminar, the idea that we all face the walls instead of each other to see if that would stimulate further debate. <laughs> so in, in doing that very small act, you know, I've, I've, I've probably done something you, you'll remember um, in the, <laughs> the lecture where the speaker turned her back to. Uh, similarly, if while lecturing here, I, I were to tell you a deeply personal story, or if I were to break down in tears, uh, or, or in, in one case, um, I attended a lecture where, where unfortunately, the, the speaker was very jet lagged and, and fainted while, while lecturing and, and hit their head uh, on the lectern as they, as they fell to the floor, it, it jolts us out of our collective you know, lunchtime fuzziness, our collective afternoon comfort. It changes the terms of the situation. It creates a new context where we suddenly don't know what the norms are to follow. And it's only if you've had experience, we've confronted such a shift before that you might you know, have some impulses on how to react. Second, um, again, with respect to disobedience of conventions, we can disobey by imposing the norm of one context onto the norms of another context. So in the United Kingdom, um, it used to be the case that most trains had a quiet zone, a place where you didn't use your mobile phone, your cell phone. And so if someone did use a phone, they could expect someone else in the carriage to ask them politely not to use it. Uh, I was in a carriage once and the man behind me was on his phone and, and he was going at it for 10, 15 minutes. And, and I eventually leaned over my seat and said, you know, excuse me, this is, this is the quiet zone. And the response he gave me was the best one. It was, it was a wonderful imposition of his context onto my context. He replied, shh, I'm on the phone. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I couldn't help laughing at, at how he had shifted you know, the norms of respect. Third, we can disobey a convention by slavishly obeying another norm. Uh, so in recent work, uh, Jessica Bullman Posen and David Posen, they've developed an idea that they've called uncivil obedience. And uh, they call it an extreme form of law following. And they contrast it with civil disobedience and other forms of explicit law breaking. 
And they say that it, it challenges us to think more subtly about the nature of disobedience. And they start with an example. They said in April, 1993, a group of Californian motorists hit the road to challenge the 55 miles per hour freeway limit. They, these people did not break the law, but they still caused significant disruption and enraged people around them. Uh, because just about the worst thing you can do to your fellow freeway drivers is to stay within the speed limit. And they did this in order to challenge that 55 miles per hour rule. They wanted to encourage its repeal. Um, and so to do that, they meticulously followed the law that they opposed. Um, and so in doing so, in, you know, in, in, uh, in adhering religiously to another norm, they breached the convention and disoriented other drivers, caused chaos on the road. And then fourth, um, again, with regard to disobedience of conventions, as I noted earlier in the example of Virginia Woolf, we can disobey conventions accidentally, unintentionally, unselfconsciously, and this can nonetheless jolt everyone out of their complacency, especially if they're not sure if we are acting unintentionally. So young children are naturally disobedient in this unintentional sense. They don't know the norms, they don't follow them. A two-year-old thinks it's just as appropriate to paint the floor and the table and the couch as the paper she's been given to use. She puts food in her mouth and then takes it out again. She examines it and then occasionally reaches over and puts it in someone else's mouth. She puts her shoes on her hands. She goes down the stairs on her bottom, even though she can walk. She climbs onto the counters. She tries to play the piano with her feet. Now, children's disobedience can certainly jolt us out of our complacency. We notice the child who is walking on the seats at the airport lounge, but we don't feel threatened by their disobedience because we know they don't know all of the rules yet. We might not like it, but we don't feel threatened by it. By contrast, when we see adults deviating from social conventions, even in little ways, with no evident explanation, we often do feel threatened. We also feel exhilarated, awakened to a possibility, and that's where the gift lies. So often when someone's ab someone abandons a convention, we feel a little envious impulse to experience what they are experiencing. So if we see someone bending over the roped area in an art gallery to stare closely at a painting, we sometimes want to go over and do that too. You know, what are they learning by getting closer? What are they learning by breaking the rules? If we see someone squeezing a peach and letting the juice run down their arm and they've got a gleeful expression on their face, unless we're really adverse to stickiness, we may want to experience what she's experiencing. If we see people in a park climbing on top of a tall sculpture that has a sign on it saying, don't touch, we may keep our feet on the ground, but we might also enviously want to know what view they're getting from the top. And then uh, fifth and finally, under the heading of conventions, we can disobey by dis uh, in disorienting ways by using new means of expression for our disobedience. So we not only have conventional norms and conventions about conventional norms, we also have conventions about how to break those norms. And so new forms of disobedience are disorienting, not necessarily because of what they advocate, but because we don't know their reach. We don't understand their consequences. We don't know how to position them in relation to types of disobedience with which we're familiar. 
And so both globalized disobedience and digital disobedience are disorienting in this way. Uh, they don't fit with traditional models of disobedience. Global protests are provocative, um, such as the ones I've talked about with respect to the Iraq war, that these took place in 800 cities worldwide. And so the sheer scale of these events, as well as the, the transnational cross-cultural aspect to them, made them very difficult to position in relation to the theories we have around disobedience. Um, they were very large, very diffuse, very non-cohesive, hard to apply any of the conceptual apparatus I offered at the outset about sincerity and seriousness and conscientiousness and, and um, you know, a right to act very hard when you have 35 million people acting with so many different purposes and alignments uh, in what would seem to be a, a single event. Similarly, digital disobedience, uh, it's it's becoming less provocative as we develop an analysis of it, but it's, it is a provocative means of disobedience because its severity is um, somewhat debatable or you know, it's difficult to know what its consequences are. Is it public? Is it dialogic? Can it be anonymous? Is it violent? Is it appropriate to call it violence? So, so that's all I have to say about um, conventions. And I'm gonna move on uh, very quickly to uh, morality because I appreciate it might be getting toward the end of my time here. Um, so the under the heading of morality, uh, the when we deviate from something that is agreed to be morally morally right and wrong, sometimes um, the disobedience can that can be disorienting isn't um, you know an, an enormous act of, of moral wrongdoing. Uh, the ones that be most startling are not the grand breaches because we can't label that person as evil or insane. If, if someone's offense is so egregious, we, we start to rethink the personality and personhood of the agent who did it. Um, but I want to share two stories that startled me when I first heard them. Um, I don't remember the source of the first story. The second one comes from Carol Shields. But they're, they're narratives that um, when I, well, they, they disoriented me and they disoriented my moral compass. And so the, the first one is the story of a man and his dog. They're longtime companions out walking in a lonely wilderness. No one knows that they're there. And they climb a steep rocky cliff. Uh, the man slips and falls badly and he's bleeding. His, his flesh is exposed. And the dog comes over and sits next to him and looks at him. And then as, as the man lay, lies dying, the, the dog leans over and licks his wounds. And then um, placidly begins to eat the man's, man's flesh. And the man thinks to himself with relief, oh good, at least he won't starve. And the narrator of this story described it as one that she found very heartwarming. That's the first story. The second story is, um, Carol, Carol Shields' short story, A Scarf. And in this story, Rita Winters goes to meet a friend, Gwen, for lunch. The friend is also a novelist. And Rita has some time before she meets up with her for lunch. And so she goes shopping, hoping to buy a scarf for her teenage daughter, Nora. Uh, she's having some problems with Nora. And so she has an image in her mind of the perfect scarf to get Nora for her birthday, one that will make everything right between them. It's blue with yellow patches. 
She searches and searches through several stores and finally, miraculously, she finds the scarf and she feels that she almost willed it into being by wanting it so much. And she's so delighted to have this precious, perfect thing that will please Nora on her birthday and hopefully repair to some extent the rift between them. And so she goes to meet her friend Gwen for lunch. And Gwen, it turns out, has been struggling with her own writing and perhaps her health and her marriage. And so to show, uh, Gwen is someone whose respect Rita has wanted. And to show Gwen that she too is a good storyteller, Rita tells her of her search for this perfect scarf, um, for search for her daughter and the pleasure she felt in finding it. And Gwen's eyes light up when she hears Rita's story. She asks to see the scarf. Rita brings it out and Gwen takes it lovingly in her hands uh, and with tears in her eyes, she tucks the edges of the tissue paper carefully around the scarf and then she puts it in her purse. And she tells Rita, you have given me a real gift today. And according to the story, Rita understands. Now, both of these stories, you know, although no great moral duty was breached, I felt when I read them the first time that something morally important had been attacked. I felt startled and angry at the authors and the characters, not only for playing out these events as they did, but for putting the moral gloss on them that they did. Each story felt foreign and threatening to me the first time I read it. What is interesting though, is that I've become used to these stories now. They don't startle me anymore. Um, and indeed I've come to see them with the moral gloss that the narrators give to them. And I'll come back to that thought that, um, that we cease to be startled in a minute. Turning from morality to aesthetics, um, it's not only uh, in, the, in, the, in the realm of convention and morality that we can jolt through acts of disobedience, we can do this aesthetically as well. So in a 2015 paper, Jonathan Neufeld outlines an account of aesthetic disobedience. He defines it as a breach uh, of an entrenched art world norm in order to publicly draw attention to and recommend the reform of a conflict between art world commitments and some shared commitment to a community. He gives some examples, one of which is, is the following. So in 2001, Jake and Dinos Chapman bought a rare and complete set of Goya prints from Goya's famous influential Disasters of War series. The artists rectified the prints by painting puppies and clown faces over the victims of war. And they titled their series, Insult to Injury, 2003. The defacing of a revered work was condemned by a number of critics as nothing but artistically shallow, merely shocking violation, desecration and vandalism. Upon learning about what the Chapmans had done, but before seeing the works, the art critic Jonathan Jones thought the project was nasty, insane, deviant. The artist claimed that the paintings were not vandalism, the puppies and clowns were not vandalism. They were not aiming simply to shock, Rather, they were trying to kick the underbelly of what they took to be Goya's portrait of enlightenment struggle with irrationality. Quote, because he has a predilection for violence under the aegis of a moral framework, there is so much pleasure in his work, unquote. In the context of the onset of the Iraq war, this work was done in 2003, the critique of the violence of moralizing 
has a broader political significance. More importantly, uh, for Jonathan Neufeld's purposes in his paper, the Chapman's work aimed to highlight and lampoon what they took to be the easy, unreflective, and uncritical humanistic moralizing of contemporary museum patrons, audiences, and critics. After Jonathan Jones, the, the art critic, actually saw the rectified paintings, the Chapman's work, he fell into the artist's trap, he says. He deemed them nasty, psychotic, and value-free, not so much a travesty of Goya as an extension of his despair. In working both with and against Goya, the Chapmans are at the same time aesthetically disobedient audience and artist. And so this story, uh, like the moral stories I've just told, this one I found shocking the first time I read it, that, one, that someone might deface a revered work of art and then call it new art. You know, it was a contribution to a conversation about art. You know, if someone uh, you know, defaced a Monet painting and called it new art, you know, it, would, it, it would shock initially. And this brings out a general feature of deep disobedience um, because I've got used to this idea as well. And that is that its impact is ephemeral. One person dissents, the, the innovator. Another person follows, the early adopter, uh, or the first follower. And then eventually the rest of us either come on board or ignore it or tolerate that quirky set of people who believes in this thing. We get used to what an act of disobedience represents. We adapt to it. We cease to be shocked. And our adaptability mutes the power of disobedience. We're, we're shocked by something only for so long, and then we incorporate this disobedient acts into our conceptual and evaluative framework. And I think this is one reason why disobedience, you know, sort of real, real deep challenging disobedience is rare, is a rare virtue. Because to, to break open some conceptual, aesthetic, moral, or epistemic space, that hasn't yet been incorporated into what we've learned to tolerate and accommodate will soon be incorporated into what we have learned to tolerate and accommodate. Okay, so some con concluding thoughts. So um, this, this last idea that the impact of disobedience is ephemeral, that is one of a few general thoughts that I think we can take away about the value of disobedience and the virtue of disobedience. There are two others uh, that I think my rough plotting of ways we can disorient and disobey. There are two, general, two more general thoughts we can take away. First, although the impact of disobedience is ephemeral, that impact is high when it happens. Given how disorienting it can be for us to witness a norm being violated, a norm being disobeyed, the deliberate disobedient, so not the child, uh, not the thoughtless Virginia Woolf, but the deliberate disobedient, bears some responsibility to appreciate the impact she will have on others when she disobeys. Because I wonder, I think there's probably a limit to the norm departures we can initiate ourselves and that we can tolerate from others without excessive stress. I imagine our capacity for disobedience tolerance is a bit like our capacity for willpower. We only have so much of it at a given time. And when we've used it up and become depleted, we react defensively and aggressively. And, and this thought aligns roughly with John Rawls's, um, one of his three conditions for justified civil disobedience is the coordination condition. That the people who are defending minority views, who are 
engaging in constrained breach of law to, to defend their views, that they coordinate with each other in advance, um, that they try to ensure that each group might actually get a hearing, that they don't overwhelm the majority's conception of justice, uh, it, that they actually coordinate in order not to trigger that defensive aggressive response. Second, given how disorienting even modest disobedience can be, the deliberate disobedient bears some responsibility to attend to whether she's truly committed to what she's doing. There is something doubly threatening about the disobedient who doesn't believe in what she's doing, who disrupts for a cheap thrill or for the sake of her own social security within the community of dissenters. Now there's a, there's a growing literature on non-conscientious disobedience, on uncivil disobedience, um, Ten Herring Lay and Candice Delamar have both written very interesting work in that area. So I don't want to dismiss its value. Sometimes the benefits of that type of disobedience are worth the price, but we must undertake it responsibly. And also in, in general, the gadfly value of norm disobedience can have that jolting, awakening, productive effect, even if the person isn't sincere. So I'll finish just by returning to George Bernard Shaw's maxims. Um, and if you recall from the beginning, uh, one part of my quote, he, 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 was, he says that obedience is one of the canonical vices. And so while I think that's overblown to say obedience is a canonical vice, the virtue of disobedience, when it is a virtue, it lies in a willingness, despite personal risks, to engage in a reflective use of that jolting, disorienting power that awakens us to new ways of thinking and being. Okay, thank you. <laughs>